to Truth and Liberty. Thank you for joining our daily live call-in broadcast where trusted leaders bring biblical insights to the issues and you can call in and get your questions answered in real time. According to the Bible, it's the truth you know that sets you free. So call in today to get answers, information, and resources to help you stand for truth and effect godly change in our nation and the world. And now here's your host, Richard Harris. Hey everybody, this is Richard Harris and uh, welcome to the Truth and Liberty Live call-in show. Uh, it's great to have you watching today. I'm really looking forward to this program. Uh, today, I don't have a guest with me. I'm gonna take uh, this time with you to share a little bit of Bible teaching. And uh, I hope that uh, today's teaching turns out to be a blessing for you. It is still the Truth and Liberty Live call-in show. So I wanna welcome you to, to uh, join into this kind of interactive process with me here today as we dive into the Word of God together. Um, before we get into the teaching, uh, let me just uh, share a little bit of information with you. Um, first off, when you do call in, just look, use the number that's on the upper right-hand part of the screen there. Six, it's 719-619-2341. Also, if you need prayer today, uh, please take advantage of Andrew's prayer ministry. Andrew Womack Ministries has an, a huge room full of Word of God trained, Spirit-filled prayer ministers. And uh, they are standing by ready to take your call today to agree with you for whatever your need might be. Just call in to that line at 719-635-1111. All right, guys, well, listen, hey, coming up here at the ministry, we've got a, a great conference that's uh, right around the corner. It's the annual Women Arise uh, Conference, November the 2nd through the 4th at Karis Bible College. And uh, the men's advance is in January, I think, or no, March these days. Uh, and the ladies' conference is in the fall in November, November 2nd through the 4th. And, and this is going to be a great uh, event uh, for women. And Carrie Pickett, uh, who's the vice president of Karis uh, World Outreach is going to be ministering along with Audrey Mack and Elizabeth Murin. Uh, I'd, I'd like to just be a fly on the wall in this thing because I know there's going to be some powerful ministry taking place. So sign up today for that at awmi.net. It's a free event. Also, Andrew Womack will be ministering uh, in the Atlanta area at the, uh, the Gas South Convention Center for the Atlanta Gospel Truth Conference, uh, November 9th, 10th, and 11th. And uh, Greg Fritz is going to be joining Andrew. Uh, if you've never heard Greg Fritz before, you've, you're missing out. Greg is a really great Bible teacher. He, he's able to take complex truths from the Word of God and bring them down and simplify them in a way that anybody can understand. He's, uh, he's got a great sense of humor. He's a, just a fantastic minister. You'll love him. So if you live in that area or even if you don't and want to travel, uh, just sign up today at awmi.net for the, the Atlanta Gospel Truth conference. All right, guys. So, um, you know what's going on in the news today, right? Um, the main thing on the headlines is still the uh, war that has broken out in, this, in Israel 
between Israel and the Palestinian terrorist organization Hamas. And, and although it hasn't been declared officially, to my knowledge, Israel is actually at war with another terrorist organization called Hezbollah, which is uh, mainly concentrated north of Israel in the country of uh, Lebanon. And so this, uh, the atrocities that were committed by the Hamas terrorists when they uh, poured over the Israeli border uh, two weeks ago and literally slaughtered men, women, children, babies, innocent people, uh, mercilessly capturing and kidnapping uh, them and taking them back into Palestinian territory in the Gaza Strip, uh, raping them, abusing them, beating them. Uh, who knows how many are still left alive of those captives. This has just shocked the world. And uh, Israel has uh, responded with a declaration of war, with a vow to crush Hamas as they are preparing and marshalling forces for a land invasion. They've been firing rockets and everything else. Um, you know, this, uh, this war in Israel, uh, it's taking place against a backdrop of, of events in the world that has caused people to begin asking a lot of questions. You know, the rise of China as a, as a rival, even maybe even in some ways superior power to the United States, woke ideology. The whole COVID pandemic, which uh, showed the greatest uh, deprivation of human liberty worldwide that we've seen in a long, long time. Uh, the Great Reset conspiracy coming out of the world global elite to form a one world government, single global currency, uh, a socialist one world government. Uh, the advance of technology with AI and, and you know, potential brain implants and things like this, that it just people are going, is this it? Are we at the end of the age? Are we there? Is the, is the great tribulation happening and so on? I, uh, you know, prophecy uh, in the Bible, uh, in time prophecy, it, it takes up about 20 to 25% of the Bible. Uh, people don't realize that, but a, ma a very large portion of the Bible consists of prophecy. And I think that, that God would not have put all of that prophecy in the Bible unless He wants us to know what it says, unless He wants us to understand it, right? I think there's a, there, uh, it's good for us to be informed. It's good for us to understand how things work together and are, how things are going to play out on the earth so that when these uh, traumatic events and things happen, we can rejoice because like, just like Jesus said, when you see these things come to pass, look up for your redemption draweth nigh. Rejoice and look up. And so this war that has broken out in Israel is causing people to ask, what is going on in Israel and is this the end times? And so I wanted to take some time in today's show to teach on the subject of Israel's role in end time prophecy, Israel's role in end time prophecy. Um, I, I can't cover uh, all of end time prophecy today. There's no way. That would take many, many uh, episodes. It's a huge, huge subject. But I just want to focus in today on Israel, the nation of Israel, because, you know, there are a lot of people, a lot of Christians who have been taught that the nation of Israel that we see today is not the real Israel, that the nation of Israel, that uh, they've been taught that the church, quote unquote, has replaced Israel in the Bible and that there's no more function for Israel or for the Jewish people in the plan of God. And uh, as a result of that wrong, that teaching, it has elements of truth in it. And I'm going to talk about that in a little bit. 
has elements of truth in it, but it's not the entire picture. And as a result of that, um, uh, people have taken the, te the teaching, that, that concept too far. And they say, oh, the, God has no plan for the Jewish people. They're just like anybody else. And this uh, nation that we see today called Israel is not the same thing as the biblical Israel. And we need to treat Israel just like we do any other country and on and on it goes. And so as a result of this mindset, people fail to understand what God is doing in the earth. And so I think it's really important. Uh, that's why I wanted to take some time today to talk about this subject of Israel and God's plan for Israel in the Bible. Where are we in that timeline today? But in order for you to grasp what I'm going to be telling you today, that we need to first right off the bat tackle this subject, if we can, of replacement theology, replacement theology. The idea that God has started over with the church really is what they're saying that, that uh, Israel failed, the Jews rejected Christ, so they're out of the picture now, and it's just up to the church. And usually when people teach that, there's sort of an undercurrent to it of um, a little bit of anti-Semitism. Um, and, and it's like when they say church, they, they may not consciously realize it, but many times they mean Gentiles, okay, non-Jews. Um, and this is, this is not true. It's not biblical. It's, uh, like I said, it's an imbalanced perspective on the Bible. So uh, let's, let's dive in, shall we? The first thing that I want you to talk about, or I want to talk about, is that what is God's vision for humanity? God's vision for humanity is spelled out in many places in the Bible, but one important place that I want to go to right away is in Ephesians, the book of Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 2, is where we're going to start here, all right? Ephesians chapter 2, in uh, verses 11 through 22. Now, I'm not going to read all of these, but let's start in verse 11. The Bible says, Remember, wherefore remember that you, that means us, in times past, being Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were sometimes uh, uh, afar off are made nigh, that means close, by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace who has made both one, hath broken down the middle wall of petition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain, that's a make of two, one new man, so making peace that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity. So this passage, and it, and it goes on for several more verses, is saying that, the Jewish people called us the uncircumcised, and we were afar off strangers from God. Christ came, and through His perfect sinless life, and then His sacrifice on the cross, His death, pouring out of His, of his, uh, of his spotless blood, His resurrection from the dead, His ascension to heaven, that through that, He has abolished the enmity, the law of commandments that stood between the Jewish people and the Gentiles to make of, of all humanity one new man in Christ, okay? This is God's, God's vision here, is not to set aside, eliminate, destroy, never think again about the Jewish people. 
No, rather, God's plan is to take the Jewish people who have, who respond to the gospel, who are in Christ, and the Gentiles who come into Christ and make one new man with no separation between them. Okay, so uh, one new man, meaning, uh, you, you know, uh, it, the Bible talks about how we are the body of Christ. Okay, we are to be the Jesus hands and feet, his embodiment in the earth. This is the ultimate vision with Christ at the head, one new man, both Jew and Gentile together. This is his vision. Well, he can't have Jew in there if he's cast off the Jewish people. Okay, let's begin. Let's look at where do the people that believe in replacement theology, where do they, what do they rely on? Well, principally, they rely on a couple of verses. The first one is in Romans chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. This passage says, For he is not a Jew, which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew, which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit and not of the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. So here the Apostle Paul is saying a true Jew is an inward Jew, one who has uh, experienced the circumcision of the heart. Okay, the, the, the new birth, the coming into Christ, the receiving of a new man on the inside, this is a, a real Jew. Of course, that invitation to be born again is open to both Jew and Gentile, right? And, and then uh, the second place they go is in Romans chapter 9, verses 6 through 8. And that passage says in verse 6, uh, beginning in the middle of the verse, it says, For they are not all Israel which are of Israel, neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children. But in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. So in this passage, Paul is saying there's really two types of seed here. Okay, uh, there's the natural seed and then there's the spiritual seed. They are not all Israel, which are of Israel. So Jews are of Israel, but they're not automatically part of the true and eternal Israel. Okay, so the people that believe in replacement theology take these verses and, and another verse elsewhere that refers to the to us as the Israel of God. And they say that you see the church, those who are born again have replaced the Jewish people. And so there's, God has no more purpose for them. But you see, this is wrong. Um, uh, they don't, these, these advocates of this replacement theology, they fail to take into account the bigger picture uh, other scriptures that uh, shed light on this subject. Okay. All right. So we're talking today about the role of Israel in end time prophecy. And if you've got questions about this, you want to comment or be a part of our, our program today, please feel free to call in the numbers on your screen there. 719-619-2341. We'll probably get to those calls later in the program because I've got a lot of material to cover, but be sure to jot your question down and call in. Okay. So the truth of the matter is this that Christ is the true seed of Abraham. And when we believe in Jesus Christ, God counts us as Abraham's seed and heirs of the covenant. All right, this is true. We see this in Galatians chapter three, very clearly set, set forth. It says, now to Abraham, this is verse 16, uh, Galatians three sixteen. to Abraham and to his seed were the promises made. He saith not into seeds as of many, but as of one and to thy seed, which is Christ. 
So the covenant was to was with Abraham and to his seed, which was Jesus Christ. You guys remember when Abraham cut the covenant, God put him to, uh, to sleep and the, he cut the animals and laid them apart in the field. And then uh, Abraham fell into a deep sleep and a lamp and a furnace came down and walked through the blood. The lamp was God the Father and the lamp was God the Son. You see, the real covenant is actually between God the Father and God the Son. Even Abraham himself was brought in by grace through faith. And as we, as we believe in the promise of Jesus Christ, we too, just like Abraham, are brought in to the covenant by grace through faith. It goes on to say in Galatians 3, 6, even as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness, that's Genesis 15 uh, verses 1 and 2, know you therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. And then in verse 29 of that same chapter, chapter 3, Galatians, if you be Christ, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Okay, so the, the replacement theologists uh, take these verses and those which I read earlier in Romans, and they say, see, we're, we're the real Israel. The Jews don't have any role today. But um, the Bible says, well, the, uh, there's a, like I said, there's a measure of truth to this, but just because we, we are the true spiritual seed of Abraham does not mean that we replace Israel for all purposes. Because the very same Apostle Paul that wrote those verses also said in Romans chapter 11 that God has not cast off those whom he foreknew. He has not cast off Israel, and in the context, he's referring to natural Israel, the natural descendants of Abraham. So uh, look in Romans chapter 11, verses 1 through 5 with me. Now, this is a long passage, but it's very, very important. Romans chapter 11 is the main passage, main chapter that you need to understand uh, if you're going to have a foundation for understanding God's plan for Israel in these end times. So Romans chapter 11, beginning in verse 1 says, this is Paul writing, I say then, hath God cast away his people? Uh, God forbid, for I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God hath not cast away his people, which he foreknew. Won't ye not, that's old-fashioned English for don't you know, what the scripture says of Elijah, how he maketh intercession to God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed thy prophets and dig down thine altars, and I am left alone, and they seek my life. And he goes on in verses 4 and 5 uh, to talk about Elijah. And then, and then verse 5 says, even so at this presence, he got, God told Elijah, I've, I've reserved 7,000 who haven't bowed the knee to Baal. And so then verse 5 says, Even so then at this present time, there is also a remnant according to the election of grace. Paul's saying there's a remnant of Jews that believe in Jesus Christ. So God, first, the first reason we know God has not cast off the Jewish people is because we've got a lot of Jews that believe in Jesus. The apostles were Jews. Paul was Jewish. The first 3,000 and 5,000 members of the church of Jesus Christ were Jews, guys. And the Jews are the ones that went forth into all the world to preach the gospel. And so there was a remnant. But Paul goes on in the rest of Romans chapter 11. In verse 6 through 10, he explains that the, the eyes of the Jewish people were blinded 
They were blinded because they were taught to believe that they could justify themselves and that God wanted them to justify themselves through the law. This blinded their heart to the gospel of grace. This is what Paul is saying in chapter 11, uh, verses 6 through 10. Their eyes were blinded and they stumbled at the gospel. This is what it says in verse 11, verse uh, uh, 10. Now in, the, in 11 through 12, and then in, uh, in verse 15, Paul says some amazing things. He tells us that God has used the stumbling of the Jews to bring salvation to the Gentiles. What am I saying here? I'm saying uh, the, because it was because the Jews rejected Jesus Christ that he was put to death and died for the sins of the world. You and I would not be saved if it were not for the fact that the Jews rejected Jesus. Okay, so God used their stumbling to save the Gentiles. And Paul goes on to say, if God can use their stumbling to save the Gentiles, then he's going to use the faith of the Gentiles to bring the Jews into salvation. Let's read it now. Verse 11, have they stumbled that they should fall? God forbid, but rather through their fall, salvation has come to the Gentiles for to provoke them to jealousy. Provoke who to jealousy? To provoke the Jews to jealousy. Now, if the fall of them be the riches of the world and the diminishing of them, the riches of the Gentiles, how much more their fullness. And now look at verse 15. For if the casting away of them be the reconciling of the world, what shall the receiving of them be but life from the dead? So Paul is suggesting here that God is going to use our faith as Gentiles to provoke the Jewish nation to jealousy. Let's keep reading in the rest of uh, well, in, in, these, in the next few verses, uh, chap, uh, verses 16 to 24, Paul talks about the fact that we as Gentiles should not be conceited or proud because we are, uh, he compares the, the, uh, the Jewish nation, if you will, to the, a trunk of an olive tree. And he says that the natural branches of the olive tree were broken off. The, 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 and he's referring specifically to unbelieving Jews were broken off. And we as Gentiles, when we put our faith in the Jewish Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, we are wild branches of a wild olive tree. We get grafted into that holy trunk, that holy lump. Okay. And then Paul goes on to say that, um, if, if the Jews believe, they will be grafted back into that holy trunk. Now I want to read to you uh, Romans 11, verses 25, probably down to about verse 30. Give me just a second to get there. Romans 11, Romans 11, 25. Paul says, For I would not, brothers, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceits that blindness in part, you need to underline that in your Bible. Blindness in part has happened to Israel until, until when? Until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. That's verse 25, a very important verse for understanding what God's doing with the Jewish people today. Verse 26, so all Israel shall be saved. As it is written, there come, shall come out of Zion the deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins. As concerning the gospel, listen now, verse 28, as concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes, but as touching the election, they are beloved for the father's sake. So underline that there, they are beloved 
for the Father's sake. For the gifts and callings of God are without repentance. Let me just pause for a second here. That Romans eleven twenty nine is a real popular verse for us to claim here in the Word of Faith, Pentecostal, charismatic, evangelical world. We like to claim that verse but to say that, you know, um, God promised me something a long time ago, and I know He hasn't given up on it, and He hasn't given up on me because the gifts and callings of God are without repentance. And I think that's a valid interpretation of that verse, but did you know the context is God is talking about the Jewish people? And He says there in 1129 that the gifts and callings of God are without repentance. Okay, this means God has not changed His mind about the Jewish people. Powerful. Okay, verse 30. For as you in times past have not believed God, yet have now obtained mercy through their unbelief. What's he saying? Their unbelief caused Jesus to be put to death. And that is what brought mercy to you and me. Even so have these also now not believed that through your mercy they also might obtain mercy. For God hath concluded them all in unbelief that he might have mercy upon all. And then Paul waxes into this praise of the unsearchable riches of the knowledge and wisdom of Almighty God in the rest of the chapter. But Paul is saying here, all Israel will be saved, Gentiles. Don't get proud against them. Remember, you're grafted in. Just like God saved you through their unbelief, through your belief, he's going to save them. By provoking them to jealousy, God is going to fulfill his promise that all Israel will be saved because he has not changed his mind about the Jewish people. Praise the Lord. Isn't that an awesome, awesome thought? So if we condense this down now, we've got some takeaways. As we're coming up on a break here on the Truth and Liberty Live call-in show, I'm Richard Harris. We're talking today about God's plan for Israel in the end times. All right, we've got some takeaways. Uh, before I go into these takeaways, though, uh, I wanted to share with you that this subject of prophecy is a huge one. I actually have done an entire series. Uh, it's a 25-part, 25-lesson series on end-time prophecy. It's called End-Time Prophecy Revealed. And uh, if you want to study this out in more detail, I talk about the prophecies of Daniel, the, uh, the, the uh, beginning of sorrows. We talk about uh, the, uh, the, the prophecy of weeks, uh, the, the, the Olivet Discourse, the Antichrist, the Great Tribulation, the return of Jesus Christ, the rapture, the millennium, uh, the new heavens, the new earth, and everything in between. It's a phenomenal studies, and you can pick that up today. There's information on your screen, or will be there, on where you can get it. Just go to richardharrisministries.org, and you can get a copy of that uh, USB today uh, that has all that, along with study guides and discussion questions for group studies. So, uh, but you can get that if you'd like to learn more about these issues. All right, so um, we're going to come, we're going to take a break here in just a minute, but don't go away just yet, because here's the takeaways from um, replacement theology bad, okay? God's not done with the Jewish people. Number one, God has not cast them off. That's takeaway number two. Num uh, or take number one. Takeaway number two, there is even at this day a believing remnant of Jews. Number three, God loves the Jewish people not only because they're human beings like you and me, but because of the Father's sake, because of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Jewish people are beloved. They are special in God's eyes. Number three is God has promised to save them. Number four, God saved us through their unbelief and will save them through our belief. 
by provoking them to jealousy. Now, we're going to pick up on that when we get back after the break, uh, as we're going to talk about the covenant of Abraham, that it's still in force, full force, and it's still in full effect today. And what does that have to do with the Jewish people in the Holy Land today and their, the fact that they're occupying that land? Okay, well, I've still got a minute. Let me begin that discussion with you, okay? We just saw in Romans 11 where Paul said God hasn't cast the Jews off. They are beloved for the Father's sake, and he's going to save them. All right? So, the beloved for the Father's sake. God made a covenant with Abraham, Abram, as he was at the time, changed his name to Abraham. And Abraham is where the Jewish people got their beginning. In fact, Abraham was the first Jew. And Abraham did not become a Jew because of his birth line. Abraham became a Jew, so to speak, because of his faith in God. Genesis chapter 15, I think it's verse 1, says that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. You see, Abraham came into a covenant with God. And that covenant is the covenant that you and I share as well and with God. And, the, and you see, in between, the covenant of Abraham never went away. But when Moses came along, God made a covenant, another covenant with Moses called the, the, the Mosaic Covenant. That covenant is what we're referring to when we refer to the Old Covenant and the Old Covenant being passed away or, or satisfied. Okay, so I'm going to pick up on that Old and New Covenant when we get right back. These are just some basic things we've got to lay a foundation for if we're going to understand the role of Israel in the end times. At Truth and Liberty Coalition, we work to unify, educate, and mobilize the body of Christ to change nations. That's why I want to encourage you to go to our website at truthandliberty.net and subscribe so that you can begin receiving regular updates uh, about our show, news items, action alerts, blog posts, and much, much more. Uh, all you have to do is go to the website, click subscribe, share your email address, and you'll begin to be equipped to stand for truth in the public square. With practical government, you have experts in the fields that are sharing their perspective, wisdom, and experience. It's not available anywhere else in the world. We teach biblical worldview. We're going to teach a Christian heritage of our American government. They're going to learn about the Founding Fathers. We're teaching the Constitution, how government operates, practical skills, and field study. There's no better place on earth to get equipped than Karis. You know, God's not done with us. He's not done with America, and He's not done with you. So many people come into practical government school and they're scared because it's the mountain of government. But you know what? They come out so strong and that is so amazing. No matter where you're coming from, the world needs you. Whatever God's calling you to do, you're able to do it. To learn more, visit practicalgovernmentschool.com. All right, everybody, this is Richard Harris. We're back on the Truth and Liberty Live call-in show. And uh, today, it's just me and you, and we're, we're talking about the role of Israel in end-time prophecy today. So um, I want to encourage you guys to call in with any questions and comments. I've still got quite a bit of material to cover in our teaching, uh, but I hope to get your questions later in the broadcast, so I appreciate your patience. Um, so we were talking just before the break about the covenant of Abraham and the law of Moses, or the Mosaic Covenant. 
it. So, you know, when Jesus uh, came and he, he's at the Last Supper and he says, uh, this is my blood, the blood of the new covenant. Uh, and then in, we go back to the Old Testament, we see in Jeremiah and in Ezekiel, Jeremiah says that God will make a new covenant, uh, not like the covenant I had with your fathers. The old covenant, though, remember, guys, super important. The old covenant that Jesus fulfilled and that we are not under is the Mosaic covenant, the covenant that says, if you obey my law, then I will do this and I will do that. But what predated the Mosaic covenant by 400 years is the covenant of Abraham. And we see that in uh, the book of Hebrews and in the book of Romans. It talks about this, that the covenant of Moses based on the law and our own performance, which came 400 years later, cannot disannul the real covenant, the permanent covenant, the eternal covenant that God made with Abraham. And so when we come into, into fellowship with Almighty God by grace through faith, that's Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, that is the covenant of Abraham, just like Abraham did. And he's the father of faith, you see. I don't have time to unpack all of these with scripture verses and quotes. But the covenant of Abraham, what I want you to understand first is that it's still in force today. It's still in force today. And so the covenant of Abraham, we can see it beginning in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. We might even go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, but I won't do that. Genesis 12, verse 1, where it says, Now the Lord said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee. And verse 2, And I will make of thee a great nation. And I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing, and I will bless them that bless thee, and curse them that curseth thee. And in, thy, in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. This is the first part of the covenant of Abraham. Additional parts were articulated by God in multiple different encounters with Abraham during his lifetime. Uh, in the next one, for example, when Abraham left the, uh, the land of the Chaldees and came to the land of Can Canaan, when he got to Shechem, uh, God spoke to him again. And in uh, Genesis chapter 12, verse 7, it says, The Lord appeared unto Abram and said, Unto thy seed will I give this land. Did you hear that? Unto thy seed will I give this land. And there builded he an altar unto the Lord who appeared unto him. God mentioned the gift of the land several other times. He had Abraham walk the length and the breadth of it. At one point, he promised that, he, that the Abraham, he was going to give him from the Euphrates River all the way to the Nile and from the, uh, from the Mediterranean Sea all the way over, um, uh, I, you know, past the Jordan River. So, and he told him he could have all the land that his eyes could see. Uh, this promise of the land to Abraham is a, it was also made to Isaac in Genesis chapter 26 and to Jacob after him. Uh, this, so the covenant of Abraham has never been annulled, never been, never been uh, set aside. Uh, it is still in effect today. And this covenant includes a promise of land, right? So um, the, uh, there were other parts of the, of the covenant, promises to bless, promise to multiply, promise to make his name great, and so on. And uh, promise to bless the entire world through him. So it's this covenant that we've been brought into, and this covenant is still in force and effect today. Now, this part of the covenant where he says, I'm going to bless the nations through you, bless the world through you, this part of the covenant 
is where God is promising to Abraham that through his line, he is going to save the world. Jesus Christ is a descendant of Abraham. All right. Which brings me to the next point that we need to understand from Scripture. If we're going to understand the role of Israel in end time prophecy, and it's this that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the son of the living God, Jesus is the king of Israel. He is the king of Israel. He sits on the throne of David. You see, God promised to Abraham that he would bless the world through him. But when we get down through the ages, we see God appearing to David, King David, one of uh, the, uh, the second king of Israel. And God promised him in 2 Samuel chapter 12, that he would never fail to have one to have his seed sit on the throne of Israel. Let's look at those scriptures, shall we? Second Samuel chapter 12, verse 7 through 16. Chapter 12, 7 through 16. And when the days, this is God speaking by Nathan the prophet to David. When thy days be fulfilled and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build an house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men. But my mercy shall not depart away from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before thee. And thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever. Verse 16, 2 Samuel 12, 16. Thy house and thy kingdom shall be established forever. Before thee, thy throne shall be established forever. God promises to King David that his throne would last forever and that his seed would sit on that throne. When Jesus comes along, he is called the son of David. Right. That's because the Jewish people understood that one of the things the Messiah would do would be to inherit the throne of King David. So in Luke chapter one, verse 32, the angel Gabriel says to Mary, he meaning Jesus will be great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. So Jesus of Nazareth is the heir to King David's throne. He is the king of Israel and will, he is ruling Israel spiritually today to those who are willing. He is ruling not only Israel, but the whole world. But this idea of the king of Israel is important, guys, because God's plan is that the king of Israel, his only begotten son, would inherit not just the land promised to Abraham, but actually the entire earth and would, will rule the world from the throne of David in Israel. I'm going to get to that later. That's a really important thing. I hope you heard me today. All right, guys. So you're watching the Truth and Liberty live call-in show. I'm Richard Harris. We're talking about the role of Israel in end-time prophecy. Please feel free to call in with your questions today. The number is on your screen. I'd love to talk to you. So once again, now I want to recap and add in what we've covered so far. The first is, the first is that God has not cast off the Jewish people that there's a, there's a remnant of believing Jews even today, in Paul's time and even today. And in fact, the number of believing Jews is skyrocketing. It's going through the roof right now. In fact, the Orthodox Jewish people in Israel are really worried about the number of Jews who are converting to Christianity because it's growing so, to be such a large segment of, the, of Israel. But, but that's an aside. The, the, the next thing is that the Jews are beloved for the Father's sake and that God has promised to save all Israel. And then we see that um, uh, Jesus, the son of David, is the king of Israel and will rule the world from the throne 
of David. So when is this going to happen? When is Jesus going to rule from the throne of David in the earth in both a spiritual and physical sense? Okay, the answer comes in Romans chapter 11. We've already looked at it, but let's go back and look at Romans chapter 11, verse 25. Romans eleven twenty-five. Because there's a really important phrase that we see there. And that is, uh, the, the verse says, uh, Paul says, For I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part has happened to Israel. How long? Until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. Really important that you underline that and understand this. There is a, uh, when the salvation of the Gentiles is complete, I don't know when that is, how many that will be, what God has deemed for that, I don't know. But when God is done extending the gospel of grace to the Gentiles and the fullness of the Gentiles are come in, we will see the Jewish people saved and the nation of Israel will come into the full manifestation of what God has always intended it to be, the one new man that's prophesied in Ephesians chapter 2 and in Ephesians chapter 3, where it says he's broken down the middle wall of partition and he will make of them one new man, believing Jews, believing Israel, or believing, Gen uh, believing Jews, believing Gentiles in one body of Christ ruling and reigning in the earth, okay? So let's look further here. Jesus, this phrase, the fullness of the Gentiles, is very similar to a phrase that Jesus used in a prophetic passage. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus gave what is called the Olivet Discourse. He's, he's on the Mount of Olives. He had been in Jerusalem, which is just right across the Kidron Valley. Uh, it's, a, it's a walk, you know, that he, he took throughout Holy Week back and forth. And, and when they're leaving Jerusalem, the disciples, he said, they, they said, Lord, look at the temple, how awesome it is, how beautiful it is. Jesus said to them, you see these stones? Not one will be left upon another. And when they get back over to the Mount of Olives, the disciples said, Lord, what are you talking about? What are going to be the signs of your coming and the end of the age? Matthew 24, 1 through 3. Jesus begins to explain to them the end time sequence that's going to happen, the prophetic events that are going to occur uh, until he returns to the earth, okay? This is called the Olivet Discourse. And so um, uh, in Luke, the same passage is recorded in Luke, and there's a little bit of additional material in Luke or different material. Luke says in verses 20, or chapter 21, verses 5 through 6, he says, And as some spake of the temple, well, uh, I'm, let's see here, I'm sorry, verse 20, he said in Luke, When you shall see Jerusalem compassed with armies, then know that the desolation thereof is nigh, and they shall fall by the edge of the sword and shall be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles. How long? Until the time, this is uh, Luke chapter 21, verse 24, until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. Can we put that verse on the screen, guys? There it is. Luke 21, 24. Jerusalem will be trodden down by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. So we've got the fullness of the Gentiles, then all Israel will be saved. And here Jesus is saying, Jerusalem will be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. 
This concept um, uh, is also uh, prophesied in Daniel chapter 9, verse 26, okay? And in this is in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel is talking, of, it's called the 70 weeks prophecy. And I don't have time to go into all of it today. It's quite in depth. But basically Daniel says in uh, Daniel chapter 9, it's actually, he's, uh, the, the, uh, the angel Gabriel is interpreting a vision to him. And the angel Gabriel tells him that there are 70 weeks that are appointed to the consummation of all things. 70 weeks appointed to uh, the bringing in of ever everlasting righteousness, okay? The angel Gabriel is saying God's purpose and plan for Israel and the Jewish nation and even for all the earth is 70 weeks away, is what he's saying. Wow, well, that's not very long, is it, right? And now certainly more than 70 weeks has happened since then, so what's going on? Well, the first thing you need to understand about Daniel's uh, vision of 70 weeks is that a week is not seven days, but it's an, it's an allegory or a metaphor for seven years, for a seven-year period. So the angel Gabriel is saying at the time of Daniel uh, that there are 70 seven-year time spans that will take place before the end. And then the angel Gabriel specifies and he says, he breaks this down into different parts. There's seven weeks, 62 weeks, and the final seven weeks. So seven plus 62 is 69, and then there's the final seven. So the angel Gabriel in Daniel 9.20 says, uh, excuse me, uh, Daniel 9.26, after three score, that's 60, after 60 and two weeks, so that's 62 weeks, he had previously mentioned seven weeks. So I know this is hard. Try to track with me here. The angel Gabriel is saying in verse 26 of Daniel 9 that after 69 weeks, Messiah will be cut off, but not for himself. So the angel Gabriel is predicting right there that Jesus Christ will die for the sins of the world in 69 weeks. The, the prophecy uh, 69 is basically 483 years. And, he, and the angel Gabriel said earlier in the passage that from the going forth of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, 69 weeks are appointed or 70 weeks are appointed. And he breaks it down into the first seven and now 62 for 69. It was 69 weeks until the Messiah. And if you do the math, according to the Jewish calendar and the decree of one of the Persian kings, there's a debate as to which one. I think it was the decree to Nehemiah to rebuild the wall was 483 years from there until Jesus Christ gave his life on the cross and died for the sins of the world. Amazing, right? Okay, but then Daniel goes on to say that uh, in verse 24 of Daniel 9, they shall fall by the edge of the sword and shall be led away captive into all nations. Excuse me, that's, I'm getting mixed up, guys. Daniel says uh, that after Messiah is cut off, this is Daniel 9, 26, that the prince that of the people, the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. So the people of the prince that is to come shall destroy the city of the sanctuary. This is, he's referring to the Roman legions, the Roman army, the Roman nation destroyed the city of Jerusalem and the end thereof was with the flood under the end of the war of desolation. So basically my point simply is we don't have time to cover all this today. But if we, if we look at this, this was all prophesied, okay? If you go back to, back to Luke and the Olivet Discourse in Luke, Luke chapter 21, verse 24, Jesus predicted that the Jewish, that not only would Jerusalem be destroyed, 
But remember, not one stone left upon another. The armies will surround Jerusalem, uh, and the desolation of Jerusalem is near. And then he says in Luke 24, 24, they shall fall by the edge of the sword and shall be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. So Jesus is saying, Jerusalem's going to be captured and destroyed. Jewish people, you're going to be taken captive into the nations of the world for how long? Until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. Paul said in Romans 11, the Jews will be saved when the fullness of the Gentiles come in. Okay? This uh, destruction of Jerusalem was also prophesied by Daniel in Daniel chapter 9. The prince of the, the people of the prince, that means the people of the Roman Empire, are, uh, are going to destroy Jerusalem and, uh, and uh, it'll be like a flood. Okay? So, um, this destruction of Jerusalem that happened, it was fulfilled in the year 70 AD. The Roman army, uh, under, it was originally under uh, uh, Vespian, a general, uh, and he laid siege to Jerusalem. And then he left because he was called back to Rome. And Titus came and completed the conquering of Jerusalem in 70 AD. He destroyed the city and burnt and destroyed the temple of God, literally not leaving one stone left upon another. 100,000 plus Jews were killed at a time when the entire population of the city was probably not more than 300,000. And all but a small remnant of Jews were taken prisoner and carried into all parts of the Roman Empire. And so this, uh, this conquest is even depicted today in what's called the Arch of Titus that was built to honor General Titus by the Romans. So if you go to ancient Rome, the, the ruins of ancient Rome in the city of Rome today, you, that arch is still standing. And you can see a picture of the Roman soldiers carrying the menorah that was in the temple on staves between them. Uh, this conquest of Jerusalem, it actually happened. And so this began what the Jewish people call the diaspora or the dispersion. It lasted 1900 years as the Jewish people lived in all the other nations of the world, setting up Jewish communities, doing everything they could to pre preserve their Jewish identity and heritage, and even the word of God throughout this age. Okay. But here's what you need to understand that the Bible also prophesies that the Jewish people would be regathered to the land. The Jewish people would be regathered to the land. In Luke chapter 21, 24, again, Jesus prophesied it because he said that, they, that Jerusalem would be, the Jews would be taken captive and Jerusalem would be trodden under feet of the Gentiles. How long? Until the, the uh, times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So he is implying Jesus himself in Luke 21, 24, that there's a time limit on this diaspora. There's a time limit on this dispersion of the Jews. They will be back. And the, the Gentiles will no longer trod Jerusalem underfoot, Jesus is saying here. In Isaiah chapter 11, verses 11 through 12, the prophet Isaiah says, It shall come to pass in that day, the day of the Lord, that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time, 
to recover the remnant of his people, which shall be left from Assyria and from Egypt and from Pathros and from Cush and from Elam and from Shinar and from Hamath and from the islands of the sea. And he shall set up an ensign for the people, for the nations and shall assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. This passage from Isaiah, it's really important that you see there's a phrase there when Isaiah says, we'll gather them a second time. So the Jews, after Isaiah, the Jews are taken captive by the Babylonians, but they come back to the land. That's the first restoration. Isaiah here in Isaiah 11, though, is saying there's going to be a second restoration. Okay, this restoration that Isaiah prophesied was fulfilled, began to be fulfilled in the year 1948 when the Jewish nation was reborn. So now now, all of that was introduction <laughs> for me to talk to you today about the role of Israel in time prophecy. So uh, Ezekiel also prophesied the restoration of, of Israel. If you want to look at it in Ezekiel 37, I won't go into that today. But there was a miracle that took place, a massive biblical proportion miracle when Israel, the nation, was reborn in modern times. You see, Israel did not exist as a sovereign, a separate nation from the time the Romans conquered it all the way up until the year 1948. But in the late 1800s, there began a movement in Europe called Zionism. People like Theodore Herzl was the primary leader, and they began to call for the restoration of a Jewish homeland and a Jewish state. Uh, they they uh, began to appeal to the foreign ministers and the princes of the different nations of Europe and others. You see, because for 1900 years, the Jewish people had been persecuted in these nations, pogroms and killings and second-class citizenship and all kinds of stuff. And, um, and so uh, in 1917, Great Britain adopted what it called the Balfour Declaration. Why is that important? Because World War I happens and Britain is actually a colonial power. And one of the areas that they, they controlled after World War I, the, uh, the Palestine was controlled by the Ottoman Empire, the Muslims. The, the Brits take it over and they set up a protectorate or basically a British colony. In 1917, they passed what they call the Balfour Declaration, which calls, says that it's the policy of the British government to one day work for the creation of an independent British st or, or Jewish state. Um, then in 19, World War II happens from 1939 to 1945. And you know, during World War II, the Holocaust happened, where Hitler murdered over six million innocent Jewish people for no other reason but the fact that they were Jews, okay? Um, I could talk about the biblical uh, foundation, or not foundation, but the book of Revelation actually talks about this, about the Satan coming after the woman. But this caused the world to cry out or to, to open its heart, really. The world opened its heart to the Jewish people after the revelation of what Hitler did in the Holocaust. Much like what you see happening today in a much smaller scale today, where we see this slaughter of innocent Jews in the land of Israel. And right now, the world is compassionate toward the Jewish people. Well, the Jews knew they had a short window, a small window of opportunity. And they pressed at that time in 1945 for a 
Jewish homeland. They began to flee Europe in droves and settle in what was called the land, uh, Palestine by the Brits. And they started setting up um, kibbutzes and communities and uh, buying homes and buying land and buying farms by the droves. Many Jews had a hard time getting there, though. There's lots of accounts of them being stuck on ships and all this kind of stuff trying to get into the land of Israel. They started pressing in the United Nations for a formal declaration that is that the land of Palestine was there, or at least a part of it. And so what happened in 1948 is... Um, the UN passed a resolution uh, carving out a segment, uh, some segments of the Holy Land for the Jews and leaving other, Jew, other land, parts of the land for what we call now the Palestinians who were before then simply Jordanians, okay, or, or Arabs that lived in the land. Now we call them Palestinians. It's not really a, a separate ethnic group, but we use the phrase anyway. The point is that in 1948, the UN declared that, and the United States of America was the very first nation within minutes to, to recognize formally the nation of Israel as an independent state. What also happened was the Arab nations surrounding Israel, this Israel was tiny, it had a tiny sliver of land, it was bordered on every side by hostile nations, and the, the Arab Muslims immediately declared war on Israel once that UN resolution was passed. They invaded Israel, and Israel fought back. It's what's, what they call their war of independence. And through God's divine intervention and help, they defeated the superior Arab forces and staked out for themselves uh, their Jewish nation. All right, I could go into more detail, but I don't need to. In the, and from that point forward, the, uh, Israel and the Arabs have been in a state of conflict, okay, because the Muslims and the Arabs do not recognize the right of Israel to exist. They are saying this is Muslim Arab land. The Jews don't belong here. The truth of the matter, though, is that the land has been the Jews since it was given to them by God through the covenant of Abraham, 1,500 years before Christ, okay? 1,500 years before Christ, the land has belonged to the Jewish people. And they have lived in the land continuously since that time. So uh, another miracle that was prophesied and that took place when Israel became a nation was that the Hebrew language was reborn. From the time that Israel uh, was taken captive by the Romans, the, the Hebrew as a spoken language began to die out because as they became slaves and captives of the Romans, they were forbidden to speak Hebrew. Uh, they began to acquire the language of the nations where they lived. Hebrew was only used as a written language for religious worship and, and from the scriptures, you see. But in this Zionist movement, there was a guy... Uh, whose name was, um, I think his name was Eliezer ben Yehuda. Let me, let me look at my notes here. But he was a Jewish man. Yep, Eliezer ben Yehuda. And ben Yehuda decided he was going to try to, he wanted to start a movement to get Hebrew rebirth as a spoken language, not just a, um, uh, a written language. And so all these Jews in Europe that had been speaking Yiddish began learning how to speak in biblical Hebrew again. And so this miracle was actually prophesied uh, in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, I just want to share this with you. In Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 9, where God says, Therefore wait you upon me, saith the Lord, until the day that I rise up to the prey. For my determination is to gather the nations that I may assemble the kingdoms to pour upon them mine indignation. In verse 9 he says, For then will I turn the people to a pure language, that they may all call upon the name of the Lord to serve him with one language, one consent. 
All right, so we're up against our second break here. I'm going to take a break for about 90 seconds. I'll be, re be right back. And when I get back, we're going to talk about what is going on with the Jews in the land today and up until the return of Jesus Christ. You were created with a purpose, written in the heart of God. Long before you were born, he is calling you to find it. We want to help you experience his unconditional love to be equipped and empowered to become a world changer. Hey, you know, a big part of what we do here at Truth and Liberty is to provide you with the resources that you need in order to stand for truth in the public square. So I want to remind everybody to go to our website and check out our resources page at truthandliberty.net slash resources, where you can find material that discusses just about every issue we're facing today in our culture. And these are things that are prepared by our strategic partners and some of the uh, most influential and important organizations in America today. Have you been praying about how to make your business your mission field? Gospeltruth.tv Business features leadership and financial stewardship training from industry experts. Learn the next steps to building wealth and using it to grow God's kingdom. Tune in Saturdays to Gospeltruth.tv Business and watch anytime with Gospeltruth.tv Premium. Visit Gospeltruth.tv today for biblical teaching you can trust. Okay, guys, we're back here on the Truth and Liberty Live Calling Show, uh, and we're talking about what is the role of Israel in end time prophecy. Now, I just got through talking about the rebirth of Israel in the land of the Bible, a miracle, a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. You see, when Jesus gave the Olivet Discourse, one of the things he said in Matthew chapter 24, he talked about the, be the beginning of sorrows, excuse me, but he also said that. Um, uh, he, he talked about something called the abomination of desolation. And he said in Matthew chapter 24 that when you see the abomination of desolation uh, come uh, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, this is Matthew 24, 15, stand in the holy place, okay? Then you need to, uh, he basically started saying you need to flee for the hills because there's going to be great tribulation, in verse 21, then shall be great tribulation such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, now ever more shall be. So I, I could go into a lot of detail about the Olivet Discourse. I'm trying to synthesize this for you. But Jesus himself said that there will be something called the abomination of desolation, which was prophesied by Daniel the prophet, uh, happen. And the, the abomination of desolation, according to Daniel, this is when the man of sin I'm going to condense real fast for you here, guys. The Antichrist goes into the temple of God and sets himself up as God. All right. So the Antichrist goes into the temple and declares himself to be God. He suspends all sacrifice in the temple of the Jewish people. Okay, and, and may even commit a sacrifice of a pig or this kind of thing on the altar. We're not 100% sure about that. But the Apostle Paul talks about this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. He says, he says there, um, 
Let no man, in verse 3, 2 Thessalonians 2, 3, let no man deceive you by any means for that day. What day? The coming of Jesus Christ and our gathering to him. You see that in verses 1. Okay. That day, our gathering to Christ and Christ's return to the earth won't happen until, uh, in verse 3, he says, uh, there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. Verse 4, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Remember you not that when I was with you, I told these things. Okay, so Paul is saying, guys, Jesus isn't coming yet until the, the Antichrist is revealed. The Antichrist will set himself up in the temple as God. And I, I believe that Paul is implying here this hasn't happened yet. So, uh, so uh, it, once it does happen, then we need to be concerned, or not concerned, but we can expect Christ's imminent return. Jesus himself said, when that occurs, the abomination of desolation, then you're going to see a period of great tribulation unlike anything that has ever happened before. That tribulation is called the Great Tribulation. All right? So, now many people think, oh, the Great Tribulation is seven years. This is not true. The Great Tribulation will be three and a half years. Here's what's going to last seven years. The seven-year period is going to be probably a peace treaty. Okay? It is a, an agreement of some kind that the Antichrist will form with the Jewish people. We see this in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. He says that the prince um, of the, that the prince of the people who are to come. Now, this gets really tough, all right? But there's two installments here. There's when the Romans con uh, conquered Jerusalem, that was an initial but an incomplete fulfillment, okay? And there was a tribulation that happened the conquest of Jerusalem, but there is, they didn't do everything that was prophesied. So I believe that there will be a second and a, an utter and complete fulfillment of Jesus' words in the great tribulation that will come on the earth. There will be a figure who comes on the earth. The Bible calls him the Antichrist, calls him the man of sin. He will be, um, uh, there's a lot that the Bible has to say about him. But Daniel chapter 9 verse 27 says, He will confirm the covenant with many for one week. And in the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and oblation to cease. So Daniel says right there that there's going to be a one week covenant. In the middle of the week, the Antichrist will cause sacrifice to cease. That's the, that's the abomination of desolation. It will happen in the middle of the week. Let's go all the way back. You remember what I said about 70 weeks? Jesus is cut off, the Messiah cut off at 69 weeks. Well, what happens between 69 and 70? The 70th week is this covenant period that the Antichrist makes, I believe, with the Jewish people. So, um, in between the 69th and the 70th week is what, guys? What we talk about at the beginning. It's the times of the Gentiles. It's the age of the Gentiles. It's the time when the gospel is going forth to the Gentiles and the Gentiles are being saved. All right? There's this, inters there's this space of time of an unknown duration that takes place between the destruction of Jerusalem and the full manifestation of Christ's prophecy and the, the real Antichrist. And this season is what we're in now. It's called the beginning of sorrows. All right? But during this age of grace, the gospel is going forth and Gentiles are coming into the kingdom. 
But wait a second, Richard, Israel's been reborn. Israel's come back into the land after 1,900 years. So what does that tell us, guys? Israel's rebirth tells us that the stage is being set for the consummation of this period of the age of the Gentiles. Israel's rebirth was a massive indicator of the end times, that they are very close indeed. Because in order for these things that take place in the Great Tribulation, the abomination of desolation and the, the destruction of the temple, Israel has to be in the land. Israel needs to come into the land and rebuild the temple. That's my personal belief, and that has not yet happened yet, the rebuilding of the temple, but Israel is in the land. And so um, this idea of the, the, the covenant that the Antichrist forms with the Jewish people uh, is implied also in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 3, where Paul says, For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say, Peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them. Who? What's he talking about, peace and safety? He's alluding to, I think, that the Antichrist is going to bring a peace treaty into place. This conflict between the Arabs and the Jews that we see right now that's been going on since Israel became a nation, I believe, this is Richardology a little bit, I think there's room for disagreement here, but this makes the most sense to me, is that the Antichrist will confirm a covenant with many for one week. The Antichrist will come in as the Savior, so to speak, the false Messiah, and will bring peace to the land of Israel. Somehow, I don't know how, but he's going to bring a fake peace. And Paul says, when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them. This peace treaty of one week that's going to be in place for this seven-year period, the final seven years of the 70 years that the angel Gabriel told Daniel was appointed until the consummation of all things. Is everybody with me now? So final seven-year period appointed for the Jewish people uh, that will begin with a covenant enacted by the Antichrist. In the middle of that seven-year period, the Antichrist will set himself up in the temple as God, and that will begin the beginning of the great tribulation period that will be so severe it will be unlike anything the world has ever seen. Okay, so Jesus said that uh, he talked about the abomination of desolation. And he, he's in Matthew 24, 15, 16 through 21. And he's telling people there, he's saying that those who are in Judea should flee to the mountains. Uh, if you're on the housetop, don't come down to take anything out of the house. Neither let him that's in the field return back. And woe to them that have child or them that give suck. But pray that your flight be not in the winter nor in the Sabbath day. For then shall be great tribulation such as not was not since the beginning of the world at, uh, to this time, nor shall ever be. That's Matthew chapter 24, verse 21. And we know that the great tribulation is three and a half years from Daniel chapter 9, where he says in the midst of the week. And there are many other Bible passages and scriptures that demonstrate or that point out that this tribulation period is a three and a half year period. I don't have time to go into that today. All right, so at the end of the Great Tribulation, here's what we're going to see. The first thing is a massive physical upheaval of nature. All right, it's talked about in the book of Revelation 16, 12 through 14, where it says, uh, first off, Jesus said it. Um, let me see if I can find that. 
Yeah. Okay. So Jesus in Matthew 24, verse 19, he just talks about the great tribulation. And then he says in verse 19, immediately after the tribulation, immediately there shall the sun shall be darkened, the moon shall not give her light and the stars shall fall from heaven and the powers of heaven shall be shaken. And there shall appear the sign of the son of man in heaven. And then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn and they shall see the son of man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Verse 31, he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds. That means those, those who believe in him who are on the earth and from one end of heaven to the other, those who are in heaven. This is the rapture and the rapture occurs very clearly from scripture at the end of the great tribulation when Christ comes. It does not happen at the beginning of the great tribulation. Sorry to disappoint you guys, but that is the way the scripture reads. And there's a lot of other Bible verses to back that up. But the point is that there's an upheaval uh, in nature, and then Jesus Christ himself returns. He returns in the clouds. Heaven is opened. Jesus comes with all his holy angels. He raptures the saints. We're glorified. Uh, those who are, uh, have died in Christ come with him, riding on white horses. We are transformed on the earth and caught up to meet him, and we all will go and land with him on Mount Olive, the Mount of Olives, which is right next to to uh, the, the uh, Temple Mount. And, and let me not get ahead of myself. So when Jesus appears here in uh, fire and great glory with his angels uh, from heaven, there's some things that happen. First off, every eye will see him. Okay, it says that. But the, from the Jewish nation perspective, what you need to understand is the, the Jewish people, the Bible says very clearly that they will all see him. And it says in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, this is a really important passage. This ties back into where in Romans chapter 11, it says that all Israel will be saved. They will see Jesus coming from heaven. And it says in chapter, 10, chapter 12, verse 10 of Zechariah, I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of, Israel, of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications, and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. Revelation 1 7 says he cometh with the clouds and every eye shall see him and they shall they also which pierced him. You see the Jewish people pierced Jesus when they nailed him to the cross. They pierced him, and the kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. The Jewish people will see the Messiah. They will see Jesus coming, and they will recognize him as the Messiah. They will recognize him as their son, as their blood relative. God will give them this revelation. The blindness that has been upon Israel in part will be lifted from him, them because the fullness of the Gentiles have now come in. And they will mourn for him, and they will wail because when they see him, can you imagine their grief? Can you imagine what that will be like for the Jewish people to realize, oh, dear Lord, we have made a huge mistake. We put to death our promised Messiah. What are we going to do? And I believe that the, the, the type and shadow of this amazing event and encounter is given for us in the encounter of Joseph in the Bible with the, the other 11 sons, or at the time it was 10 sons of Jacob came to Egypt and they were encountering Jacob, but they didn't know it was him until their eyes were opened and he, he, uh, he revealed himself to them as their brother, the brother that they had put to death. You see the parallel. 
Joseph revealed him. He, he, he told them in the beginning, God's going to, you're all going to bow down to me. And they resented it and hated it. And they put him as they thought they put him to death. But he was rescued or sold into slavery by, into the Ishmaelites and ended up being raised up to be the second in authority over all of Egypt. You see, the type and the shadow is that Jesus was sold. He was put to death by the Jewish people and he was raised up by God to be the king over all the world. But you see, the, the Jews didn't recognize Joseph to be their brother. They thought he was dead. The Jews today don't realize Jesus Christ is the king of the world. They don't realize that, okay? But the day will come when their eyes are opened. And when they see him, they're going to cry. They're going to wail. They're going to lament. The Bible says the brothers of Joseph fell on his neck and kissed him, and he cried. And there was this glorious reunion at the revelation of him as their brother and as him as their savior. He'd already been saving the world through the famine that came on the world. Now he saved the Jews. The same thing is going to happen. He's already been saving the world from sin. And he's going to save the Jewish people from sin when he's revealed to him at the second coming. The saints are going to come with Jesus. And we're going to go with him and we're going to uh, destroy the Antichrist. Jesus will destroy the Antichrist and the false prophet and the armies of the Antichrist. Okay. Second Thessalonians chapter two, verse eight. Then shall that wicked be revealed whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth. He says then, meaning when Jesus comes and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Revelation chapter 19 talks about the destruction of the Antichrist and his armies by Jesus when he comes in more detail. It says in Revelation 9, 15, Out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. It's a long passage, but it goes on to say in 1919, I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. So there's many passages, guys. Uh, Zechariah chapter 12 prophesies that Jerusalem is going to be invaded and surrounded and plundered by the nations of the earth. This is the same battle that Revelation 19 is talking about. The Revelation 19 says, and in, in other places in the book of Revelation that I don't have time to go into, the armies of the world are going to invade Israel at the end of the tribulation period. And they are going to uh, con conquer Israel. But at the last second or minute or whatever, some kind of, you know, Jesus is going to appear. The sky is going to be split open. The fire and glory and the angels of heaven and the saints riding on white horses. And Jesus Christ with the sword of his mouth is going to destroy the Antichrist and his armies. Read about it in Revelation chapter 19. And they were the, uh, the Antichrist and the false prophet will be cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brim brimstone. That's Revelation 19:20. And the remnant uh, of the Antichrist's army were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, wherein the sword proceeded out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. So you can see, you can learn more about this in Zechariah 12, Zechariah 14. If you want to study it in detail, get my series, uh, End Time Prophecy Revealed, as we go step by step through all of these scriptures. I promise you, it's an exhaustive study. The point is here today is that Jesus sets, he, he conquers the Antichrist 
with the saints are with him riding on white horses. He then sets his foot on the Mount of Olives right outside the holy city. The Mount of Olives is where he was taken up to heaven and it's where he's going to return. Acts chapter 1 verse 11. Uh, Jesus is taken up to heaven and the angel says to the disciples that are standing by, uh, you men of Galilee, why stand you here gazing up into heaven? The same Jesus which is taken up from you into heaven shall so come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. And then in Zechariah 14 verse 4, the Old Testament prophesied, His feet, whose feet? The prince, the king that's coming, the good king shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives, which shall cleave in the midst thereof uh, toward the east and toward the west, there'll be a split in the Mount of Olives. There'll be rivers that come out of the Mount of Olives that go north and go south. And it says, uh, there shall be a very great valley, and half of the mountain shall remove toward the north and half of it toward the south. And it shall be, this is verse 8 of Zechariah 14, 14.8, it shall be in that day that living water shall go out from Jerusalem, half of them toward the former sea and half of them toward the hinder sea. So the Mount of Olives will split half north, half south, and out of Jerusalem the temple will proceed living water to the east and to the west. Jesus, many other prophecies, Ezekiel talks about this in detail, that Jesus will enter through the east gate and he will take his place, he will take his place with great glory on the throne the throne of David, the throne of Israel, the throne from which he and we, those who are in the covenant of Abraham, will rule the world with him throughout the millennium. Okay, so um, Revelation alludes to this in Revelation 14.1 when it says that John saw, he says he saw the Lamb standing on the mount, on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written in their foreheads. All right? Yes, those are Jews, guys, but it's not just a literal number, but I don't have time to go into that today. It, the 144,000 with 12,000 from all 12 tribes is symbolic. It's symbolic of fullness, the fullness of the church, both Jew and Gentile come in and the Gentiles are brought in and made Jews under the covenant of Abraham and believing Jews experience the fullness of the covenant of Abraham for the very first time as they're born again and brought into the resurrection of Jesus Christ to rule and reign with him forever. And so um, what is the conclusion of all this? The conclusion of all this is the role of Israel in the end times is that God is setting the stage for the fullness of his promise, the fullness of his redemption of mankind in the earth. And the Jewish people will be saved and will be given the, the opportunity to believe in Jesus and experience that and come into the fold so that there will truly be one new man and that God's promise to the fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that he will save their, their, their descendants and their seed will be brought into fulfillment. The land of Israel, Jerusalem, will be the stage for the ultimate rebellion, the ultimate rebellion of the Antichrist with the nations of the earth and the people of the earth, declaring mankind to be God. That's what 666 is, you know, it's the number of man. It's the worship of ourselves. It's we don't need you, God. We're going to do this on our own. We're going to do it our own way. We're going to do what we want. We don't have to be ruled by you, God. That's what that's all about. That's what the Antichrist is all about. And anybody who talks about God and about Jesus and about the Bible and doesn't submit to man's uh, rebellion, comport with man's rebellion, but 
professes Jesus Christ is going to be killed and persecuted. That's what the Antichrist in 666 is all about. And the ultimate manifestation is the invasion of Israel by the armies of the Antichrist that come from the east and he exalts himself up to be God. But Jesus Christ, the true king, will come with the army of the faithful and will conquer the Antichrist and his armies and will establish his eternal reign upon the earth from Mount Zion, the city of Jerusalem, the eternal city, the eternal capital of God upon the earth. Okay, now the temple of God, I believe, does have to be rebuilt before all those things will be fully manifested. But we see this conflict in Israel today. Uh, the Palestinians committing atrocities against the Jews is the spirit of Antichrist and that persecution against the Jewish people. Okay, and it will come to fruition at some point. And the fact that Israel has been reborn after all these years uh, is a massive sign to us. Um, and, and the fact that, you know, there's many other things I could point to, like I said, China, Great Reset, all these other things that Satan is trying desperately to, to bring this into fruition. And uh, only God knows how long it will be. He will not allow the devil to do that until the fullness of the Gentiles have come in. All right. And so that is really right now. The role of Israel is as a stage setter, as a, uh, a, um, a precedent to the kingdom of Jesus Christ on the earth. It's getting the table set, getting things ready for Jesus to come back to the world and to rule the world from the nation of Israel, the Jewish king, the, the son of David from the temple. All right. So once we see uh, Jesus could come at any moment and at any time, but once we see the temple being rebuilt, the third and final temple on the mount in Jerusalem, you know it's getting really, really close. All right, guys, I actually finished with just six minutes left to answer your questions, and I want to do that. Frank is on the phone from Missouri. Frank, what is your question, brother, today? Oh. Can you hear me? <laughs> I got a couple of scriptures here, and I want to know uh, what what they mean. It's uh, Jeremiah 31, uh, and, uh, and I'm going to read it if I can real quick. And then Amos chapter 9 and verse 11. Uh, you know, Richard, uh, the, the, the restoration of the broken down tabernacle of David, uh, and then verse 15, Amos 9, 15, about, uh, about once they get it back into the land that there ain't nobody that's going to take them out of the land. And then this passage here in Jeremiah 31, 35, and 36, that says, uh, as long as the sun and the moon are ordinances in the sky, that uh, Israel is going to be a nation forever. Yeah, so uh, so you know you 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 just about covered 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 everything there, but I just so, wanted to say about this the completion of, of it, the completion of this uh, 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 really it's the yeah. message of the glory of God being preached. Yeah. Yeah. In, in, its, in its power and its glory, that God revealed uh, 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 Galatians three eight. What, what does that say? Galatians well, Frank, let me just let me just jump in here, and and uh, those prophecies that you're referring to are talking about the Jews being brought in the second time for the final permanent fulfillment that they will never again be uprooted. It once, um, and I believe we're in that third the phase, the implementation of those promises today uh, that they have now been. Brought 
brought back and are still being brought back. Thousands of Jews are returning to the homeland every year in Israel and from all over the world. This is the planting of the final, I believe, the final planting of the Jewish nation. And those promises are beginning to be fulfilled. So they will not be removed from the land again. And Jesus Christ will make sure of that personally when he comes to defeat the Antichrist and establish his eternal kingdom on this physical earth. All right, brother, thank you for the question. I hope that helps you. We've got some other questions that came in by, um, by our chat, and I want to I touch on, on uh, one of those if I can. Um, and this, uh, this question says, um, are the Jews in Israel the 12 tribes of Israel? I've heard that some of them are not. What is the truth in this? Are all Jews part of the 12 tribes of Israel? Is there something... Uh, is there something as true Jews and not true Jews? So there's multiple questions there. The first part is, are they the 12 tribes of Israel? Well, I'll say this, that the Jewish people in captivity have done as much as they possibly can to keep their lineage tracked. Uh, but there is still, a, uh, you know, over 1900 years spread out all over the world. They have not been able to keep pure track of their lineage in order to say, oh, I'm from this tribe and I'm from that tribe. However, they do know enough to prove the, uh, a continual line uh, of succession, that they are the Jewish people, they are the descendants of Abraham. Um, now, um, so, so there's a lot of, uh, of false doctrine being, false ideas being taught out there again today, like, oh, the Jews that are in Israel are not the real Jews, that the Jews are, you know, in Africa or something like this. I personally view that all to be hogwash. Um, the Jewish people uh, are returning to the land, and they are not imposters. They are the seed of Abraham. All right. Um, uh, why do the Palestinians think the land is theirs? Because they want it to be theirs, because, uh, because Arab people have lived in that land for generations and generations, right? The, even the Jews themselves, when they, when they came out of Egypt and conquered the land, did not fully um, push every non-Jew out of the land. Remember, the, Palest the uh, Philistines remained, and uh, they never did fully, fully obey God in that sense. So there are, there's always been non-Jews in the land. Um, and then, you know, um, between the time of the Jewish, uh, well, in the first captivity to Babylon, uh, the king of, and, and Assyria, the king of Assyria sent Syrians down to intentionally settle in what was known as Samaria, and they intermarried with the Jewish people. Uh, when the, uh, the, Jew, the Jews from Judea and Benjamin were taken to Babylon, the Babylonian king, um, you know, made sure that other people uh, took over in the land of Judah. So when the Jews came back into the land, there were other ethnic groups there, right? And they didn't push them out and exterminate them like they were commanded to do the first time. So we've always had this going on. But by God's gift, God's command, the land belongs to the Jewish people, right? So, and I'm, I'm not saying that they should uh, tear down houses and, and kick people out on the streets and that sort of thing, but um, the Palestinians' claim to the land is inferior uh, to the Jewish claim to the land, all right? So um, that's actually all the time I've got yet uh, today, guys. I would love to keep answering questions, uh, and, uh, but I can't do that. We are actually out of time. So I just want to thank all of you for watching today and uh, appreciate uh, your interest in this subject. Um, and I hope that it's been a blessing to you. Again, I think it's really important that we understand end time prophecy. And so I've created that product, uh, uh, End Time Prophecy Revealed. If you want to get a copy of that, you can do that on my website at Richard 
www.karisministries.com. I'm not trying to sell it. Just want to make it available to you if you want to learn more about the subject of end time prophecy. God bless you all. Thank you so much for watching today, and we'll see you next time on Truth and Liberty. Thank you for joining today's Truth and Liberty livecast. You can watch today's and past livecasts in our archives at truthandliberty.net. Our goal is to educate Christians and connect them with resources and organizations to help them impact their sphere of influence. You can help us accomplish this by making a donation at truthandliberty.net slash donate. Join us next time for more Truth and Liberty.